0: Uh, a few months ago, uh, I, guess, well, I guess not a few months ago, towards the beginning of this year, my father-in-law called me one day, and my father-in-law has come to where he no longer buys books in a bookstore. He buys it from, well, order it for me off the Internet. And so he gives me a book title, and he tells me who wrote it, and he says, can you get on that Amazon and order that for me? And so I, he, he told me the book was named Costly Grace by John Walker, and I said, well, where'd you hear He goes, I'm, somebody told me to buy the book. And so I got online and I, I ordered it for him and read a little bit about it. And oh, you know what, I'll order one for myself. And so I ordered it and uh, had intended for it to go. I have a stack of about 32 books to be read. And for some reason, it made its way to the top of that list. Uh, I think it's the providence of God. And, and the Lord just used it to really um, kind of challenge me in some ways. I had read, we're going to talk a little bit about the cost of discipleship. I'd read a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship and a few years ago. And this just kind of reminded me um, of that and some th- challenges in my own life. Uh, we had planned about that time we were praying through and felt like that we were going to walk through 40 Days of Purpose, the Purpose Driven Life book together uh, as a congregation. And so it just so happened that we were thinking about doing these things on Sunday nights so that kind of related to that. And I started following John on Twitter and somehow realized he lived around here, and uh, just made a contact through that about um, through his website about him coming to speak, and he has agreed to come and just talk with us a little bit tonight. And so John Walker's here to talk with us. John has had a lot of different experiences in ministry, a lot of really neat experiences in ministry, uh, but tonight he's primarily going to talk about the book he's written called Costly Grace. So would y'all welcome John Walker as he comes? Thanks. Thank you. John, it's good to have you here. And I I wanted to start just by kind of letting people know a little bit of who you are. And so if you not, we don't need the two hour version, but the short version of kind of some ministry backgrounds some things you've done and and experiences that you've been able to to do as the Lord's kind of led you.
1: You don't want me to start like, oh, I was born in California. All the way back.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. well, you know, my ministry—it's been—it's—it's uh, it's been kind of an exciting thing of uh, of just seeing how God opens opens various doors. Um, I was uh, um, I was raised as a Southern Baptist, you know, creator role, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I went to seminary. Um, when I when I uh, was in seminary, I came over here for an internship with the Southern Baptist Convention. And as I was driving back with one of my fellow students, he said. Hey, just wait, you know, if you could just kind of wave a magic wand. And, of course, we don't believe in magic wands, but you know what I mean. He uh, he said, if you could, what would be your dream job when you got out of seminary? And I said, you know, um, there was a guy that we met. His name was Mark Coppinger. And I said, he's, he was starting a magazine at the time for the Southern Baptist Convention. I said, I would love to go work for him because I'd been a journalist and, and now I was in ministry. And we got back to campus. And about two weeks later, I get a phone call from Mark Coppinger. And he says, hey, would you like to come and work for me? and, uh, and it is one of these things where like god you know it's you know it's just saying hey this is what you're supposed to do so we ended up over here working for the southern baptist convention um same kind of thing with uh with Rick Warren I worked with Rick Warren I have on and off for about the last 10 years and I was over here uh I was the editor of Home Life magazine at one point with LifeWay and and Rick contacted me um and he said hey how would you like to come to work for me and and I prayed about it a lot and I said you know Rick this is really strange I I believe god is telling me to come work for you but I don't believe he's telling me to come to California. And and Rick said, you know what? Let's let's telecommute. So I actually started working from Hendersonville, Tennessee, uh, for Rick, uh, and we launched a website called Pastors dot com. Uh, and at that point, nobody ever had ever heard of Purpose Driven Life. Uh, in fact, I remember sitting in a restaurant over in Hendersonville with a draft of Purpose Driven Life, and I was reading through it, and I was thinking, this just isn't going to work. People aren't going to get this, you know. You know, what did I know? Um, and, uh, and, you know, sure enough, uh, you know, that, that took off, and, and Rick just does an excellent job of, of explaining uh, the basics of what you need to do as far as how you move towards your purpose in life. Um, uh, I've been a pastor uh, at Saddleback in, uh, in North Carolina. Uh, and, uh, and then I've also, I, I was always a writer at heart, and so I've been trying to do some writing. And, and I'd say this is the first significant book that really has gotten out, where it's in the bookstores and people are actually reading it. Yeah. Uh, tell us uh,
0: now. Before this book, I know you've done some devotional stuff. Is that right? Uh, right. You've written some
1: devotionals with Purpose Driven
0: uh, Ministries, or uh,
1: right? Yeah, I, I have. Uh, I have at times. Uh, there's the what we call now the Daily Hope devotionals, yeah. uh, or the Purpose Driven Life devotionals. At one point, I was writing those, and then. Uh, and then um, Rick wanted to get back in, so I, I edit Rick's material. Um, I, basically, I take his sermons and I shape them into devotionals so that they can, they can be in there. Uh, I've written a devotional called uh, Growing with Purpose uh, that, that came out a couple yeah. of years ago.
0: So what led you to want to write Costly Grace? What, what was kind of the journey to this being the first significant kind of book published that you've had?
1: Well, you know, there again, you, you have to look at how God works through your life. Um, like you, I had read uh, The Cost of Discipleship when I was very young, and I was very impressed with Bonhoeffer and what Bonhoeffer uh, had to say in that book. He had influenced me a great deal. I actually saw, and I've told Rick this, as I, as I flip through The Purpose Driven Life, I see a lot of Bonhoeffer's influence in that book. But I think that when the Holy Spirit is speaking to people, you see similarities, and so therefore you can... You can take uh, Purpose Driven Life. You can take Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. You can take uh, My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers and, and other people along those lines. And you can lay down and look at the truths that they are teaching and you'll see a similarity over and over again. It's not that they are copying each other. It's that they have the same Holy Spirit within them. The same Holy Spirit that is in me is is also in, um, you, know, in you. The same Holy Spirit that is in us is, is in in you all. And, and God is working through all of us in that way. And so I was looking at that, and I, and I was really kind of trying to come to terms with with what the church or what discipleship means in this day and age. Um, to be very uh, frank, you know, I'm a bit of a cynic uh, about discipleship and, and about, uh, I think in a lot of ways, we've failed ourselves. The church has failed itself. We've, we've, we've limited discipleship down to where we... Uh, you know, when I was growing up, you know, we called it training union, you know, and it was like the one hour, you know, and this is it. Discipleship is this one hour where you come and you have a Bible study, and now we've broken it out and we do it in small groups, but, but it always has to do with us studying for like one hour and knowing, knowing some book of the Bible or doing this or that, but we never look at what does it mean for it to be all day long, because God doesn't want us for one hour a week, you know, he wants us all day long, and what we learn needs to be applied in our lives uh, constantly, 24 hours a day. And so I was kind of looking at that and saying, boy, this really, uh, we really aren't doing this very well. And, um, and, and I was looking at Bonhoeffer and I was thinking, you know, now here's somebody who really was out there on the edge saying this is, this is how to do it and, and living it within his life. And here again is how God works through these things. I, um, uh, I have an agent uh, who, uh, you know, we just published the one uh, book, uh, Growing With Purpose, and he called me and he said, there's there's a small, uh, small publisher in Texas, and they want to do a book based on the cost of discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And they're looking for a writer. Would you have any interest at all in writing that? Uh, you know, and, and I said, wow, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that I was born to do that. Um, and so, again, God just opened up the door that way. And so then I began uh, working on the book from there. Tell, tell everybody a little bit
0: about Bonhoeffer and kind of uh, the cost of discipleship because uh, I, I think that's a work that um, is underused, underappreciated, especially considering the life he had. And so right. uh, just kind of yeah. a little bit about who he is and what the cost of discipleship was.
1: Okay. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor um, uh, in um, Germany uh, during the World War II Nazi era and in fact it's almost i think about the book of esther where for such a time as this uh for such a time as this he was born because he he was ordained uh right as the nazis came to power and he really um he really uh stood up against hitler for the remainder of his life uh he he was born he was born actually in a privileged uh uh household uh fairly wealthy um but they they uh they believed deeply in God. They believed that your faith should intersect with everything, your your politics, the way that you lived your life, and the way that you did things. And so Bonhoeffer uh, was was called um, to theology uh, to be a pastor very early on. Uh, he, um, he was ordained, um, I think it was in 1932 or 19, it was just a little bit before the Nazis came to power, and that was in 1933. And he was 25 years old. Um, and uh, he he actually got on a national, a national broadcast a couple of weeks after Hitler came to power and he, and he began speaking and he talked about the fact that they were turning the Fuhrer into um, like a god figure and they were worshiping the Fuhrer and that that was going to, uh, ultimately was going to decimate Germany. And about mid-sentence, as he was saying that, uh, he was, the, the plug was pulled and they took him off the air and right there the Nazis drew a line in the sand. This is a guy you know that we need to look out for uh, he was a pacifist. He, he did not want to be in the military. He believed very strongly in, in pacifism, but he struggled. And this is one of the things that I really like and admire about Bonhoeffer. He struggled with a real faith. He started looking at the evil that he saw. He, he became aware of what was happening in the concentration camps. And he began to ask the question, what happens um, if, it's, if the government itself is evil, how do you deal with a government itself that is evil? How would God have you do that? And and the best example I could say um, that he himself gives of how you can say, well, how could a pacifist then become involved in working against uh, Hitler? Uh, He actually became involved in, in some of the plots to kill Hitler. He looked at it this way. He said, if you were standing in a marketplace and a drunk driver came around the corner, bumped up onto the sidewalk, rolled over, killed a couple of people, and continued down the street. You, morally, as a group of people watching that, would have an obligation to do whatever it took to stop that drunk driver from hurting anyone else. And so that's, that's what he, um, he became involved in. He, uh, he was actually uh, involved in, in the, uh, the secret police, not the, not the, uh, the Gestapo, but, but the actual sort of like the German CIA. And he was a double agent, um, it was a fascinating life of what he was doing. He was always living on the edge but trying to, uh, trying to bring peace. He was, he was trying to uh, uh, get, get Britain to understand that there were Germans who wanted to get rid of Hitler and wanted to have peace. He was trying to look out for you know, what are we going to morally do at the end of this war and we're going to lose it. How are we going to live with ourselves knowing what we have done? He, uh, he was, as, as the war heated up, he actually um, was given a position in New York City at Union Seminary. He could have sat the war out there and been very safe. He got there and he immediately realized he'd made a mistake. And, and he said, I cannot stay here in New York City. Uh, I can't go back and help rebuild Germany if I'm not there experiencing all the things that they're experiencing now. And so he went back and he did that. And uh, in 1943, he was arrested um, He was not arrested for being involved in uh, some of the plots to kill Hitler. He was arrested because he was helping Jews to escape from Germany, and he was arrested because he was preaching the gospel, and that was against the law at that point. Um, But once he was in jail, and they held him in jail for a while, and they began to uncover other things, they came upon some documents that showed that he did have a knowledge of uh, uh, the uh, July 20th plot, the one that Tom Cruise made a movie about, He was aware that that was going to happen. And so, therefore, he was on a list of people who Hitler uh, put on a list and said, I want these people specifically executed. And he was hung. um, And he was hung. uh, It would would have been, it's coming up, uh, I think it's April 4th or 5th. So just in a couple of days would be the anniversary of his death. Three weeks later, Hitler committed suicide and the the war essentially came to an end. But uh, he was killed right at that point in time. But he just did a tremendous thing as as far as trying to get um, German Christians to understand the cost of grace. This is not about just receiving Jesus as your Savior and then kind of getting along as best you can. Uh, This is about the fact that this is going to cost you your entire life once you receive the grace of Jesus.
0: And the the book title is Costly Grace, and that comes out of that comparison that he makes early on in his book between cheap grace and costly grace. So... um, you started to elaborate on that a little bit, but talk a little bit about what Bonhoeffer and then what you kind of write about the difference between um, cheap grace and cost of grace, and how cheap grace has kind of infiltrated the church of today.
1: Okay. And I, I was explaining to your pastor, I'm, I've uh, I've been fighting a flu here, so excuse me if I uh, if I get incoherent every once in a while. I've uh, I've been taking some Nyquil, which is the only legal way that a Baptist can have alcohol, you know, and. Uh, so I'm, <clears throat> but uh, you know, cheap grace. Cheap grace is when we take the grace of God and we we uh, we then assume that we have been saved, and now we can live the way that we want to. And and uh, the way that I, I like to explain it is, you know, in in John, Jesus uh, they they bring a woman to him who's been caught in adultery, and um, and Jesus gets down and he starts writing in the sand and everything, and he looks up and he he says. He who was without sin cast the first stone, and he continues to write in the sand, and he looks up, and everybody's left. There's nobody left to condemn her. And he stands up, and he says, um, he says well, if there's no one left to condemn you, then I, can, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. All right? Now, grace is that he looks and he says, you know, I, I won't condemn you either, so go. Um, the cost of grace is, he says, go and sin no more. There's an expectation there when he says, I've forgiven you, that her life is going to change, that she's not going to go back and be the same person that she was. The problem with cheap grace, what what has occurred is, um, and what was occurring in the German churches, is they were assuming that, okay, we've been forgiven, so now we can do whatever we want to do. Our lives don't have to line up with the word of God because we have been forgiven. And the German church used this uh, for all kinds of um, ways to compromise, including compromising with Hitler, as they began to sign uh, agreements with Hitler that would leave them in power uh, but, but undermine the church more and more and more. And so that's what cheap grace is. But we have that in our lives here also. It's, it's where we, we say, okay, I, I believe in Jesus, but that, means I'm, but that doesn't mean I have to change. I don't have to do any kind of a change that is there. Um, it, it's a situation where, you know, we Baptists, we say... Um, Uh, love the sinner, not the sin. Cheap grace has a tendency to love the sin, okay, and excuse the sinner. Uh, Costly grace loves the sinner, but it does not excuse the sin, okay, because the sin cost Jesus Christ his life. Uh, The sin cost the blood of Jesus, and and we have to remember that, and when we accept the grace of God, it's a costly grace. It means that ultimately... um, Everything that we do is going to have to be filtered through Jesus, for, you know, from now on. And I can elaborate on with that, but I'll, if you want to ask a question or you want to I take it in a different ahead. direction, yeah. you, you can. You, you, keep,
0: you can keep going. You're, you're good. You're good. <laughs> so, um, you know, well, I, I think that I said you keep going. then I'm interrupting you. you said, right. That's how I do. All right. Um, th- there's the famous quote from Bonhoeffer, which when a when a man comes to Jesus, the the call is to come and die. And so that that sense there that um, grace is free, but it cost us everything. It cost us our life to follow him. And so, um, you know, reading the book, which one of the things that I think is really good about about the book is that it it is a study in some ways of the the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. Uh, Yes. Although you wouldn't necessarily get that just from reading it. You kind of put that together as you go. And I think there's some... In the introduction material, it kind of describes that, but it kind of follows that Sermon on the Mount. And to see that as kind of a um, guide for what it means to follow Jesus completely. Um, and so, how does, what are the obstacles in the church today, in America today, and people who have been a part of Southern Baptist churches for 30, 40, 50 years? What are those obstacles in our lives that prevent us from following Him and understanding this uh, concept of costly grace of, of giving our life to Jesus? Does that, that yeah. question make sense? Uh, yeah? Okay.
1: I, I think I think the biggest obstacle that we face is that we um, is the illusions that we live by. You know, if I could put it that way, it it is it is the preconceived notions that we have of what Christianity is. And we try to adhere to those preconceived notions as opposed to the word of God or what Jesus has actually said. Um, John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and the flesh came to, to live among us for a while. And it was Jesus, he came full of grace and truth. And that means that if we have Jesus in our heart, we are full of grace and truth. And the problem is that we keep trying to separate those two. If, if you try to live totally by truth and push the grace out, you become a legalist, you know, and you're just following, this is the way it has to be here. If you try to push the truth out and you follow, try to, you know, you say you're just following grace, that's when you can fall into cheap grace. Well, this is okay, this is okay um, in doing it. Uh, so Jesus isn't calling you to be a legalist. He isn't calling you also to excuse sin. Um, but the, the obstacles that we have is... Um, I'll tell you one of the biggest ones, and this is the one that really has driven deeply into me. I still struggle with this to this day. It's about being a, a good person, okay? I, I would say, you know, in growing up, I was a nice guy. And I'd like to be considered a nice guy and a, and a good guy. And I'd like to think that most people would have described me that way. That's unbiblical, okay? God never called me to be a nice guy. God never called me to be a good guy. God called me to be a godly man. Do you see the difference? And, and, uh, and there are times when I found myself being a nice guy or being uh, being a good man, and I was actually undermining what God was trying to do. You know, Paul talks about the fact that we have to reach this point in our life, uh, it, kind of the King James, this oh wretched man moment. You know, oh wretched man that I am, who can save me? I need a savior. And, and we get people... Um, they start to get towards that, oh, wretched part in their life where they realize how bad things are, and we come in and undermine them because we're good people. You know, oh, it's okay, you're not that bad. It's okay, it wasn't, oh, it's okay, it's all right. And, and we do that kind of thing. Or, or uh, you know, God is trying to teach somebody something and they have put a, a judgment on their life financially or something like that. And we come in and we bail them out. Whereas God wanted them to hit the bottom so that they would finally figure things out. Now, don't misunderstand me, and this is why I talk about grace and truth. There is a balance. It comes down to where we have to listen to God because God may tell you to bail somebody out. But it needs to be God telling you to bail somebody out, not your image of what a Christian should be doing or not your image of what good is and and things like that. So I I think that's the kind of thing that that gets in the way. Um, I'll tell you another thing, and again, I struggle with this every day. It's the American dream. I think the American dream... I think that many of us my age, I'm 53, I just turned 53, um, and I know, uh, I think that many of us have aligned the gospel too closely with the American dream, okay, and and what it is. And and I'll tell you, through the economy and a couple of other things, you know, and I don't need to go into all the details, I have pretty much lost everything that I had worked for over the last uh, 40 years. Uh, we we had to sell our house uh, about a year and a half ago because uh, because of the economy and things. And you can imagine, you know, took a huge beating on that, lost that and everything. And I'm going to tell you, one of the struggles that I have had is is coming back into believing um, what is the best thing for, like, my family. And, and I keep coming back to, you know, the, the house, the backyard, the, the play set, you know, those kinds of things. And those are all good things, but that doesn't mean that that's what God says. But that, that dream has such a grip on me that it is difficult for me to let that go, to not say, to not say you know what, I need to pursue God and not what this is. And, and I know I am guilty of this, but I know a lot of other people are too, of, of saying, okay, this is what it's about, so you just keep chasing after that. Even after you've lost everything, then you're trying to see if you can get back to that as opposed to saying, okay, what is it that God really wants here? And what is it that God is calling us towards? And that's what costly grace is about. You know, one of the things that I think Bonhoeffer brings out really well is, you see, Jesus is a filter, and to explain it in this way, no relationship can ever be the same once you become a Christian. And it would be like this, if if there was a young man here in this church, and he came forward and he said, hey, I'm going to marry Sarah Beth, and I'm so excited, and everybody's excited, and everything. I hope there's not a Sarah Beth here, because I'm, I'm not talking to anyone. And 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 everybody's really excited. And he says I am going to marry her. And then they come and they get married. And then the next weekend, you see him uh, coming along down the aisle, and he's with Rosemary, this girl that he dated for three or four years, and he's hanging out with Rosemary. You would say, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? Okay, he got married, and once he got married, every Relationship in his life is now filtered through that marriage and his relationship with uh, with Mary Beth. All right, everybody. Um, did I just change the name there? Okay. <laughs> we, we got the point. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Sarah Beth. It's it's Mary the Beth. Nyquil. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, but you you yeah you get the point. So so here it is. So everything his relationship with with her has changed. His relationship with Ex-girlfriends has changed. His relationship with his buddies have changed. His buddies can't just call on a Friday and say, hey, let's head, let's just head on out of town, quick little weekend trip. He can't do that. His relationship with his parents have changed. Hopefully. You know? And um, that's the way it is with Jesus. Our relationships are different. So we can't become a Christian and then go back and and have these friends who are like These are our Christian friends and these are our non-Christian friends. Now, we may have Christians, we may have friends who are not Christians, but we can't treat them differently. Jesus has to factor in there, you know, no matter what. And and that's part of costly grace.
0: One of the things that strikes me as I read the book was, and just analyzing where churches are today, especially Baptist churches, is it's interesting how we kind of walk on both sides of that, what you just talked about with the legalism and then the chief grace. Where as Southern Baptists especially, we have the once saved, always saved. And so we have this doctrine of eternal security, which I believe is a biblical doctrine. But that gives freedom for us in some ways not to be able to exercise like church discipline because we see, um, or we don't want, we don't give us freedom to not exercise it. We don't want to exercise church discipline because, well, that's them acting that out. But at the same time, Baptists, and we mentioned this in the sermon a couple weeks ago, are pretty notorious for being able to make good lists of what can and cannot be done. And, you know, in some ways as a pastor, I look at the state of the American church. And what I realize is, something you said earlier about discipleship being an hourly, is that we're not doing discipleship or we're not explaining it Um. Well, enough that we're not, um, we just, we've lost all sense of what that means, what it means to follow Jesus daily, you know, not to use the cliche term 24 7, but just all the time, that every right. part of our lives is impacted by that. So, how, you know, reading the book, hearing that, that's kind of a heartbeat that you have to see people follow the Lord. How do you think we begin to turn that? ship away from the American dream, even in evangelical circles, of well to be a good a good Christian, which is one of those terms that you know to be a good Christian, you end up with the house, with the backyard, and you just don't do these things, and you just live your life kind of peacefully instead of No, you wholeheartedly follow what Jesus wants to do. How do we begin to turn the conversation in the American church towards what true discipleship is?
1: Um, Right. I, I think I think number one, it has to start with ourselves. We we have to look look at ourselves, and we have to we have to be serious about this ourselves. And and what is it that that God is saying? Um, really take an assessment, you know, of of yourself and where where you're at. And, and, and I want to say there's nothing wrong with you know if you if you have the the house and the backyard and all that. God God may have given that to you, but it does have to do with um, we say, okay, is this what God wants me to do? I, I, I find myself so easily just jumping in and thinking, oh, this is, this is the thing to do, or this is the right thing to do. And I'm working off of my instinct, or I'm working off of uh, you know, my smarts, whereas I, I need to be going to the Holy Spirit and saying, okay, what, what is it that you, what is it you want me to do? Because often some of what God is trying to ask us to do is, uh, is, goes against what we might naturally do. You know he's trying to break us through with that. I, I think you know you're talking about church discipline. I, I think small groups are really important because um, because you can have church discipline without being a big discipline thing. In other words, iron sharpens iron, where you can you can get in and you can begin to talk to people and and you can kind of get into each other's space and and be accountable to each other. And I'm not talking about um, that it has to be this major conflict or anything, but but uh, you know where where you sit down and you say you know I hear you saying this. But I see you doing this and this and this. How do you think that lines up? And and getting people to begin to look at that and say, okay, this is this is what uh, uh, you know, this is this is where God is leading you, or do you realize you, you say that you want God to lead you this way, do you keep doing things that undermine that and lead you over this way? I, I find that in my own life as I'm kind of kind of reassessing my life, you know, that okay, this these are the areas I want to go. But I keep I keep steering myself over here because it's the easier thing to do, or it's or it's where I want to be, um, the easiest. <laughs> yeah, the, I heard an illustration one time about
0: somebody that says they're on a diet, but they eat every day at a buffet. You know, they they. I hear you, brother. Yeah, they constantly. Amen. Put that temptation yeah. out there. There's a uh, there's a quote in the book that I, I just kind of impacted me, and I, I won't get it exactly right, but. There's a place where you say any of our negotiating with Jesus or delaying or attempting to kind of talk talk with him through decisions is simply disobedience. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I find I struggle with in my own life is what you just kind of mentioned. I, I think I hear a call from the Lord, but then I rationalize what's happening. And so um, I, I think it's important for us to kind of begin to differentiate between what is the lord calling us to do and what is it that we've built into our lives as traditional right. uh things let me ask you what, what was the toughest part of the book for you to write uh, you know several chapters for you know 14 15 16 all these chapters based on bonhoeffer's book and reinterpreting it what was the toughest part of the book for you to write
1: well um let me let me step back a second okay. before I answer that and say uh, the the aspect of obedience and the negotiations with jesus um what what Bonhoeffer says and, and I want to clarify this because i don't want it to be misunderstood um, uh, Jesus doesn't come to us and and when Jesus says jump, you know we say how high that uh, that's not the kind of relationship that he's looking for um but but what he does is once Jesus has made it clear what we're supposed to do, we need to do that, and and part of our faith is 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 ha- taking a concrete step. And this where it could be misunderstood also. We are saved by faith, not by works. But when Jesus tells us to do something, we can't sit there and have what we have come to call intellectual assent. We can't say I'm with you Jesus, I'm for you Jesus. That's not faith. Okay. Uh, faith is taking a step whether it be taking a step you know in, in our baptist tradition of you take the step forward of walking forward uh it is it is staking that taking that step of obedience that then shows your faith and in that obedience your faith is increased and and the way to explain this is um, Peter sees Jesus coming walking on the water and he says oh bid, lord if you would bid me come to thee I, I will come you can see i was raised king james and everything but uh uh it's funny to hear, when I'm on NyQuil, I fall back to the King James right here. It may say something
0: about the King James. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, now, Peter, Peter says, you know, if, if you bid me, I will come. And Jesus says, says uh, well, come on. Okay, that's my southern translation there. He says, yeah, y'all, y'all come, yeah. yeah. And um, now, Peter could have said, okay, guys, see, I believe, I believe. But that doesn't mean he's not being obedient. To Jesus, and he's not being obedient, he's not showing any faith. It's when he actually steps out, and even as he's kind of getting you know together and he kind of puts his leg over and everything, it's when he actually steps on the water. That's his act of obedience. Now, here's, here's the thing I want you to understand. When he steps on the water, can you imagine that moment when he stepped on the water and now his foot doesn't go in? All right? At that moment, in his obedience, his faith was increased. Do you follow that? In his obedience, he puts his foot on the water. His foot doesn't go in, so his faith is increased. So, in other words, he now has more faith to take the second step. And then the third step, and so forth. Now, we know the story of Peter. He looks around, and he sinks, you know. and then Jesus has to pull him up. But that, that doesn't take away from what I'm saying here, which is that um, in his obedience... Uh, his faith has increased, and Bonhoeffer says, you know, he, 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 is, he who is obedient is faithful, and he who is faithful is obedient, and it sounds like some kind of a Yoda kind of, you know, Yoda kind of master thing where it's... It, that's all that he's really saying, though, is you take these steps of faith. That's why often God will ask you to take a step of faith first, and I know you preach this, right? You take the step of faith first... And then God will reveal the next step. And where I'm talking about the negotiations is what we do is before we take that first step, we say, you know what God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this for you and I'll take care of this. And we have all kinds of negotiations before we'll take the first step. What God wants is for us to take the first step. And then we go on from there. Yeah. We, we, um, there are a couple of people
0: in here that we, we've talked about this in relation to like mission trips or feeling something God's called you to do and you know, one of the struggles we always have with mission trips is well I don't have the money to go and uh, one of the things that's become an anthem for many are in here is though no, you take the step say I'm going God's called me to go and then God will it's not like he provides well God if you'll provide the money right then I'll go it's right. you make the commitment to go and then um, then he'll provide so
1: yeah you know and see and that's an interesting example because you, you'll take that step and in here too is where I struggle but when we talk about costly grace so we'll well You'll take that step and then, and then there will be people who they take that step and then all of a sudden, you know, somebody comes forward or anonymously gives them the money and they pay for their mission trip and, you know, it's an amazing thing. There are other people that doesn't happen to you. Well, what happened to God? Well, it doesn't mean that God wasn't in that, you know, whatsoever. I mean, you take this step of faith and you think, okay, now God's just going to take care of everything. Well, he is taking care of everything, but he may be doing it kind of piecemeal, you know, in, in various ways. So what... <clears throat> Did we, Did
0: you answer the toughest
1: part, of the book, uh, or did you not? No, want to? You <laughs> no. I, you yeah. know, I I can answer that. It's. Uh, I think um, uh, there actually were a number of areas where it really made me kind of sit down and think. Whoa, wait a minute. You know, i what what I'm. Uh, I really have been following. You know, I think the good that I'm talking about. I really have been following my goodness instead of godliness. Uh, there there is a, a chapter on. Um, I don't recall the name of the chapter, but it's uh, you know, "Vengeance is mine," says the Lord. And um, you know, and and, and I could understand that, especially being a nice guy, I could understand that. Okay, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God will get that person back. But here's the thing: is as I followed that out biblically, okay, if if somebody has come and has really really hurt you, and you still have to rely on the fact that God is the one who will take the vengeance on them or will deal with them. But this this is where this is where it becomes really difficult. Ultimately, God's vengeance on them is God wants their heart to be changed so that they will come to Christ, so that they will be sitting next to you in heaven. So if you are, if you are the German who has killed the Jew, and you are the brother of the Jew who was killed, uh, you know, and you've become a born-again Christian, you still are hoping that the person who killed your brother is going to end up in heaven with you. That's, that's what Jesus is looking for. Because vengeance is mine. Um, you know, Jesus came on a mission trip uh, to save all in the current age and to bring us back to heaven. That, that is what he is looking at. And it means that sometimes we, we have to really hold steady and wait and say, okay, God is going to take care of this. And, and, and then when you start drilling down, and this is where, where I, I say we really, uh, we really need to get discipleship kind of down into our toes, so to speak. You, you may say, okay, I'll never raise my hand against that person, but you still kind of have a, uh, <laughs> kind, of, kind of that attitude. You see him as, <laughs> you know, or that little check in your heart where you see him, okay? God wants to eliminate that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I'm not saying this as a, as a preacher. I'm saying this as a fellow traveler who struggles in some of these, these areas. Uh, that's what God is looking for. He's looking for a faith that is real where you're coming back and you're saying, okay, what does this mean? Because you are so totally dependent upon Jesus that you you have to figure out what the next step is by going to him. I don't know if I explained well. so no, you're I'm... good.
0: <laughs> what, this last thing, and then we're going to open it up to see if they have any questions, okay? Um, what's the one takeaway that you would like for people, they read the book,
1: what's the one, if you could have them take away one thing, what would it be? Um, I think, I think that what we, you know, what we have talked about is if, if you have made a commitment to Christ, you, you need to look at, okay, what are the costs of this? In, in, okay, this is how I'm going to follow God. I'm not being articulate here. What I'm trying to say is, is your discipleship has to go all the way down to your toes. You, you have to look at everything is a spiritual issue. You know, when, when things are happening, you have to look at there, there is a spiritual issue to everything that you're dealing with, uh, what, what is going on. When I say it's a spiritual issue, I'm not saying, you know, like you know demons all behind it or something like that. I'm saying that every problem that you encounter, there is a spiritual issue that is there. You need to be going back to Jesus and saying, Jesus, why is this occurring or what are you wanting me to hear from this situation? When, when, you, um, when you get into an argument with someone, there is a spiritual issue that is there. OK, one of my friends, Steve Pettit, he says uh, he says, you know, you need to start looking at your your spouse, you know, your cranky spouse as the voice of Jesus calling you to be more Christ like. And see, the issue that may be there, it may be the spiritual issue is not about the other person. Boy, God, help me to show that person how to be a better Christian. It's about God trying to show you an area of your life where you still haven't given up to Jesus. And so you are still trying to rearrange them for your own convenience. You're trying to get them to be the person you need them to be so that you won't be bothered as opposed to what it is is Jesus has come into your life to bother you, to make you into a Christ-like person. Um, So if, if there's a takeaway, what I'd want you to do is, you know, tomorrow when you get into an argument with someone or you have a problem, you know, and you're frustrated, I want you to stop and I want you to say, okay, Jesus... What is this that you are trying to show me here? Maybe he's trying to show you how to help the other person, or whatever. Maybe he's trying to show you something in yourself that you need to change.
0: All right, y'all have questions. I'm going to come to you if you've got a question, so that we can hear all hear it. I have a question? All right, Cliff. Cliff, you don't need a microphone. Just, just, just talk. Uh, no, no. Who's that? It's Rob Bell. Yeah, Rob Bell. Oh,
1: Rob Bell. No, I didn't realize that uh, Rob Bell was in town this weekend. No, no. Um, you know, I, I hate to say this in, in, uh, in having spent a year writing the book. I don't know if there's a specific thing, you know, regarded regarding, you know, this is what will happen, you know, with with, uh, with hell or anything like that. But uh, I think it's pretty clear that you, you have to follow Jesus and that Jesus is the only way uh, to get there. I have not read uh, Rob Bell's book. I've read uh, some reviews about it here and there. Uh, so I, I really can't comment on his, his book. I will comment on what I believe and what I believe that the, the Bible teaches. You know, Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the light. Uh, there is no way to get to the Father, you know, except through Jesus. There is a hell. Uh, we, we, don't, uh, we don't get, if there's not a universalism, the Bible doesn't teach that at all where we're suddenly all forgiven in the end. Because if that's the case, then God's got to be the cruelest God in the world. Why did he sacrifice Jesus on the cross? Okay, and there is no um, kind of uh, just disappearing into nothingness where, you know, those who don't go to heaven just lose consciousness because it's very clear. Uh, I mean, when Jesus when Jesus was on the cross and he went uh, and got the, uh, the keys to heaven and hell and he actually preached to people in hell uh, during the three days. Um, I don't think the Bible would say that if there were not a hell. So there, there is a hell. Um,
0: you know, Cliff, it's an interesting topic, and we do have a staff member who has read the book, and it is not I. And so we might, that might be something for us staff, we might talk about doing that one night, biblical concept of hell and discussing Rob Bell's book and doing that, doing a question and answer time with that. So that would mean a couple of others would probably have to read the book. So <laughs> that's why we may not do it.
1: Anybody else? Question? No, Well, thank you for that affirmation. I, I'll tell you, if I were a great marketer, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not good at, <laughs> I was going to write an article, you know, about, I, I think at social media or whatever, I just don't do these kind of things, I'm not a great marketer, but if I was a great marketer, I would have framed this out in that, you know, this this book, I think God is shaking us right now, it's pretty yeah. clearly, yeah. you know, with everything that's going on financially, uh, everything that's going on in the world, uh, you know, the wars in the Middle East, you know, what happened to Japan and everything. And, um, and and uh, and that's why I say if I was a great marketer, you know, I would have you know done the book as you know God's message to you right now or whatever. But but I think um, I think that we are being shaken right now because God is trying to get us to look at what are the most important things. Okay, Rick uh, Warren is preaching right now. He's kind of got this umbrella of a decade of destiny. What if the next ten years were the most important ten years of your life and? Kind of looking at how you assess your life and then how you're going to spend the next 10 years, um, but you know, if you think about what, what if, what if there were only five or 10 years left before Jesus came back, and and I mean we've you know, we've said this for years, but I'm saying really, what if it were? How would you change your life, and how what would be important and what wouldn't be important? And I'll tell you, I've got I've got a storage unit full of stuff that you know I'm just I'm just starting to throw things away because it's like. What's the point of even having this or keeping this kind of thing? Because it's not that important to what we are supposed to be doing as far as what God might be calling us to do. Um, I think part of the, the shakedown, too, is to get us to remember our values. And, and this, I'm, I'm not trying to align with the American dream here, but I'm trying to align with biblical values. What are, what are our values? What, what, are, uh, what are really important to us um, uh, my, uh, my nephew, who is about, um, I guess he's 25, uh, he grew up in a very privileged home. And yet he, uh, he went out, he spent a couple of years in, um, in missions, like in South Africa and various places in Africa. He spent a year where he ate, he spent a dollar a day. He never spent more than a dollar a day to eat because he wanted to be on the same level with the people that he was ministering to. Um, and he's just gotten uh, married to a young woman who's very committed like that. And and what amazes me is how little they want. And, and here's where it is. And I'm not pointing any fingers at anything. I, you know, I, I mean, I've seen weddings go from like when my sister got married 30 years ago to where you know you might have the big wedding in the church. To weddings to where you know you've got to have the limos and you got you know you spend as much money as you might have on a house. And then. Here's my nephew kind of bringing it back down to where, you know, it's in a little chapel, you know, and and it's just very small. Because does it really matter if you have all these extra things, you know, and you've got three can openers, you've got to, you know, return? And, you know, you see what I'm saying. I mean, it's kind of like returning us. I keep thinking as, as I've looked at my own economic situation, and I'm remembering, I'm thinking, gosh, I remember my mother used to do this. Yeah, but we stopped doing it because we had more money, you know? I mean, I think God is trying to do that because as as he brings us in like that, it allows us to then focus and to spend our time and our resources and our money and our energy on the things that are the most important thing.
0: And I do think that there is, um, within the Christian, American Christian culture, there is this kind of realization that yeah. we have bought in way too much to our own culture. Yeah. I mean, you guys like David Platt writing Radical yes. and... Um, Crazy Love by Francis Chan and even um, right now they're doing. Uh, there's a huge college conference Passion in Fort Worth and part of the focus of that is how much money they can raise to help other people mm-hmm. and so uh, that's one of the kind of encouraging things about the American church yes. especially the generation uh, I'm right on that edge but the generation kind of behind me that is saying we're not we don't want this anymore this kind right. of status quo thing so I think that's encouraging anybody else?
1: All right, you got any parting words well i um you know i am I'm, I'm glad to be here and very grateful that you would let me come and uh, you know and, and share with you all um, i i I really believe that God is doing doing some incredible things, the very things that you're talking about, you know with uh, uh David Platt and some of these other people, again, I think the Holy Spirit speaks through various people and that God is sending a very clear message. Some exciting things are, are happening and are about to happen, and it's like time for us to prepare and time for us to, to move forward. And, you know, you, you, you have a book like Costly Grace, and I even debated with the publisher about calling it Costly Grace because people look at that and they kind of think of it as heavy, you know, and like, oh, my gosh, you know, Costly Grace, and, you know, <laughs> what have I done wrong? You walk out of here and you think, oh, man, I've been terrible and all this. The whole idea behind grace is that, you know, God forgives. And, and, and so it's not a matter of, okay, I haven't, I haven't done it quite right up till now. Oh, woe is me. It's rather, wow, God has empowered me to do it right from now on. Okay? And we look at where we can go from now on. But, but there is so much more to what he is offering than what, what you have been accessing. And so now you try to access all of it and, and move forward from there but uh, but we can um we can uh, the whole idea behind uh embracing God's grace is that we can then live boldly and not be fearful of uh, what it's going to look like, not be fearful of uh uh you know even um, well, what it may look like or, or anything along those lines. Yeah. we can just do what God tells us to do, yeah,
0: and that's one thing I would say about the book because you do hear costly grace and the people say, ooh deep, and uh it, there are definitely deep truths in there, but it's it reminds me a lot of Purpose Driven Life And that Purpose Driven Life uh, I said this a couple of weeks ago the genius in that book is the simplicity with which it presents what God has called us to do and I think uh, you do a, an excellent job of taking both scripture and Bonhoeffer's ideas and making them um, to where they're accessible and, and uh, understood easily it's challenging but it's also very encouraging it's, it's a strange mixture in that uh, there are chapters that I read, and it's just like, ugh, you know, I mean, um, the Lord really hits me with that. And yet, just a couple of sentences later, though, I realize the freedom that comes in the realization I just made, and the, and the grace that is offered, that, you know, at first I do do that, Oh, I've been terrible in living, or I've, I haven't gotten that yet, but then you realize the freedom that comes when you realize what that grace really is and its offering. And so... I appreciate you being here with us tonight, John. I I really do. He does have a couple of books out there. Some books uh, he brought the devotional along that he mentioned, the Growing with Purpose, and and Costly Grace um, uh, is out there. And if you would like to pick up one, you can you can do that on the way out. Some of you had mentioned you were kind of interested in that, and so uh, emailed him and let him know that uh, it'd be good if he had some of those available. And so they're they're out there, and uh, uh, I just appreciate you being here. You know. Let him know how much you appreciate him being here tonight. Thank you.